If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus, chapter 24. Chapter 24. If you're new to Mission here today, my name is Eric Baker. I'm one of the pastors here at Mission. And uh, get the opportunity on this Lord's Day to preach to you. And so thank you guys for, for gathering with us. If you'd follow along with me as I read the entire chapter of uh, chapter 24 as we move along here in this sermon series, um, I would greatly appreciate you doing that with me today. The word of the Lord says in chapter 24 of the book of Exodus, Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. Then Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, it was a pavement of sapphire, stone like the very heavens for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief Men of the people of Israel, they beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, and I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for your, your instruction. So Moses rose in to assist Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for until, uh, until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord dwelt on the Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day he called out to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain. In the sight of the people of Israel, Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. This is the word of the Lord. By the time that we get to this section inside of the book of Exodus, the law, the Ten Commandments, the 
civil law, excuse me, the moral law has been given to his people. Over the last several chapters, we've seen how this has played out in what we call the civil law. So God's word has spoken. His law was not this, it was binding, and yet it wasn't burdensome to God's people. Uh, you read other passages inside of God's word, and he, the, the people of God love God's law. He, they love these boundaries because they understand clear who God is, and because he is perfect, holy, and righteous, then what he says and what he decrees and the boundaries that he places before us uh, are good. They're for his glory and for our good. He is perfect, he is holy, he is just, and we should listen to God Almighty who has already saved us, has baptized us in the Red Sea, is sanctifying us through his presence as we walk to our glorified place, the place called the promised land, the plant, the place flowing with milk and honey. If you've seen what is taking place in this, over the last several weeks, we're seeing this conversation take place with God and uh, between God and Moses. And Moses kind of comes up and down the hill like an escalator, telling them, the people of God, vocally what he has been decreeing to them. It comes down in this moment, and we see this essentially a worship service take place. Maybe you've wondered here, even this morning, why there are certain things that take place inside the worship gathering of the saints here at Mission Church and other like-minded gospel-centered churches as well. The components of that service are actually found inside of Scripture, and this is one of the places that we see. What does Moses do? He calls the people to come and worship God. So they come to him. Uh, we see in this passage that they read the word, that the word is spoken, that the word is a place of centrality in the lives of the people of God. We see in this passage that there is a response to the word of God as the people declare these things in this responsive reading, right? That something is read, the word of God is read, and the people respond to what is read. And then later on in this passage, we actually see a communion meal. We see a meal taking place, not like the Lord's Supper, but a fellowship meal, because typically inside of Old Testament and in New Testament, when they would even partake in the Lord's Supper, it was more of a buffet with many different parts uh, that took place in communion. Uh, the bread and the cup were part of that love feast, if you will, that took place. We see that in this passage in chapter 24 that this worship service is taking place, that those components are there. And Moses has this very specific role, as I think Pastor Justin actually preached on this early on in the book of Exodus, that Moses is the mediator. He is the liaison between a holy God and these people, the Israelites, and God's nation of people, these Israelites folks, and the person that goes between uh, the, the physical Israelites and God Almighty is this mediator named Moses. Now, there isn't anything particularly fantastic about Mo, right? Um, it appears that he had some sort of speech impediment. Uh, we don't know exactly what that is. Uh, let us not forget that Moses is also a murderer. Uh, but what separated him from other people and other sinners was simply the choice of God, that God had placed a calling upon his life, like he does pastors, in order to stand as some sort of mediator between God and his people. Now, um, it's an earthly 
mediator, obviously, but this is what Moses' responsibility is over and over and over again. The people complain, or God says something, and then Moses takes that and he delivers that, or the people complain, and then Moses takes that, and then he says that uh, to God. There's this exchange of information that takes place between God and his people through this mediator. Now, if you're looking inside of your Bibles, if you have the ESV in front of you, uh, then one of the things that you will notice is that at the little subheading up there again, is that it talks about the importance or a covenant confirmed. And so what we see taking place, and as we've talked about this several times inside of this sermon series, is the importance of this word covenant. Importance of this word covenant. To understand the Bible, you and I need to understand this word, covenant. We need to understand the clarity that when we see the Scripture over and over and over again, that the whole Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is a series of covenants. Sometimes there's covenant between man and man or man and woman. Sometimes we call that marriage or um, we see other people inside of the scripture that has these sorts of covenants. There's these agreements, these contracts. If you're an American citizen, we have one that's a covenant. It's called our Constitution. It shows us by what our government is supposed to do and also what we as the people are supposed to do. It both gives boundaries and it gives freedoms. Well, we see this idea of covenant inside of the scripture inside of what is taking place here, um, and it is a very biblical word. If you are a member here at Mission Church or you ever desire to be a member here, uh, we have to be a member, we have what we say is a covenant membership. And the reason why we use that particular term is because it is a biblical word. You must get this to understand the scripture is to understand covenant. It's to understand the power and the value of covenant. Now, if you don't know that word, um, then let me give you a definition here. So we see from uh, Dr. Wayne Groom, he's a theologian, he's, he's very helpful on some things. Uh, in his systematic theology, he defines it this way, a covenant is unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man, that stipulates the condition of their relationship. We've seen from the very beginning of the book of Exodus that God has chosen, and from the very beginning of the Bible, really, is that God has chosen a certain group of people to become a nation, and that this nation was to be a blessing to all other nations, that, they, that other people, and essentially that this nation would become the mediator for all other nations, that they would be a blessing to the nations, and in being a blessing that these nations would then come to God Almighty as well. We see inside of this definition that this covenant, again, it is unchangeable. It does not change. It is divinely imposed, like this is coming from God, that God declares what is inside of this covenant. In the covenant, God sets the terms. God sets the terms. And what that means is, is that, that man himself or humanity cannot change or negotiate. Rather, we can either accept God's terms or we reject 
those terms. Now, please get this. This is all centered around a very relational understanding. Uh, this is not uh, some sort of idea of this oppressive dictator coming and, and just ruling and forcing these people into slavery. But again, upon understanding who God, the God of the Bible is, then the natural response is to want to obey him at all costs. And we see inside of the book of Exodus, the, what we call the Mosaic Covenant. This is the covenant between God through the mediator Moses to these people called the Israelites. And again, don't forget, this is a very relational thing. And it's much like a man and a woman who are in deeply in love with each other, exchanging commitments, exchanging vows with each other. And yet, this is coming from God. This is how I am going to bless you. One way to look at a covenant between God and man, specifically his people, is that God makes promises. God makes promises, and the people respond by committing to those committing to him, being devoted to him. This is his desire. This is his blessing. With inside of covenants, as we can see inside of the book of Exodus, that covenants have both a side of blessing and warning, blessing and punishment. That if you follow the covenant, if you keep up with your end of the bargain, then guess what happens to you? There are many blessings for you. Inside the covenant that God makes with the people of Israel, he's telling them, hey, I will be your God and you will be my people. There is many blessings. You are going to you know, far exceed. You're going to live in this land. It's going to be a blessing to you. It's a land flowing, this place of great generosity. If you obey me because I am your God, then many blessings are coming to you. Yet the other side of that coin is this, is that if you don't, follow me. If you don't respond with obedience, then there is punishment coming. We see within the covenant that there is both life and there is death. We see within the covenant that there is both work to be done and there is grace to be done. See, there are conditions within this covenant, specifically for the Israelites, um, that they obey God and if they don't obey God, then again, bad things are going to happen to them. What's going to take place? Well, if you read the rest of the Old Testament and know very much about the Israelites, um, then when they obey God, then again, these blessings come to them. But when they don't obey God, then oftentimes they're exiled from the very promised land that they're heading to. Or even worse, I think even maybe worse is that you're still living in the land, but there's a foreign king or queen that's sitting on the throne that's ruling over to you. So you're in constant grasp. You can see what is to be the gift of God, but rather a foreign pagan is sitting on the throne ruling over you as you're in slavery and bondage. This is the picture that we see over and over and over inside the Old Testament, isn't it? And throughout the history, really, of Israel so we see that within this very passage of Scripture that, that God is delivering this and he's confirming this. It's like the, the vows that are being spoken between him and the people. They need to know the expectations as we talked about last week. He's pre-teaching, hey, this is what it's going to mean. This is the demands that I'm going to have. 
But this isn't the first covenant that we see inside of the Scripture. Did you know that there's a, a covenant that is assumed, um, that, that is talked about indirectly, and maybe even some directly, um, that we see inside of the, the Scripture? And this covenant is often called the redemptive covenant. That first and foremost, that covenants, this understanding of who God is, begins in the Godhead. Maybe you've heard of this. It's called the Trinity. It's really hard to explain, and I am in no way in the next few minutes going to try to explain it to its utmost because it's something that is a mystery to us that will become fully known to us for those of us who are in Christ when we get to heaven. But we can have some sort of understanding that inside of the Godhead, that there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, God the Father is not God the Son. Uh, God the Son is not God the Father, and neither one of those things are God the Holy Spirit, and yet altogether they, they are God. And we see that within the Scripture, um, this, what is called the covenant of redemption, that the first covenant that we see is actually an agreement between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that they um, are in perfect unity with each other and that they are going to do something redemptive. This is before the, 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 the foundations of the world, before God spawned the earth on its axis, that God, the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, decided that they were going to redeem people before you and I ever need, even knew that we needed to be redeemed. That there is this narrative that God is going to accomplish. And he's going to accomplish in his people. He's going to accomplish it in his creation. Then you step into the Garden of Eden. And what is known there is a covenant between God, the Godhead, and Adam and Eve. It is often known in theological terms as the the uh, covenant of works. And in that covenant of works, what happens in the garden? I guarantee even some of our smallest of children could probably tell us what took place inside the garden, that God made them, that they were good, and he told them to work, to, to steward the earth, right? That they could eat and do of anything. So that is the blessing side of being in covenant. They did not deserve the very breath that God had given them, but he created them in their own image. He gave them full reign inside of this garden. Look at all of the blessings, all of the things that you can do, but just don't do this. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But what takes place? They eat, and they go from being naked, or, or from being naked and not ashamed, to being naked and really ashamed, to the place where they're trying to hide from each other. They're trying to hide from God. And so what comes to them? Punishment, life, death. We see that punishment come. And yet, from the very get-go, what does God do? They could have lived forever in relationship with him. He said, if they eat of this, they will surely die. And eventually they did. But God could have immediately in that moment took their lives and ended creation. And yet, what does he do? The Bible tells us in the book of Genesis chapter 3 that God essentially takes the life. He kills an animal. There is bloodshed. He kills this animal and in that, takes the skins and then forms clothes 
to give to Adam and Eve. And yet, if you continue to read, you, you see even in this covenant of both life and death, and it seems really, really difficult because, again, they're removed from the garden. There is punishment that has come to them. They disobeyed, and so they are removed from God's garden. They are removed from this first promised land. And yet, in the midst of all of that chaos, what does God do? From this woman, there will be a son. And this son, he will have a bruised heel from the serpent. He will crush the head of the serpent, and the serpent will bruise his heel. From the very get-go, we see this dichotomy of death and life, but promise of future hope. Now, you continue on reading, you come to this guy named Abram, he's a pagan worshiper, he is not worshiping God, all of a sudden God shows up and he decides, man, I am going, excuse me, I got to get back. Um, The sixth chapter of the book of Genesis, we see another covenant, this is Noah's Ark, right? And God's wrath comes pouring down, his bow of his wrath comes pouring down on all of humanity, God decides in the midst of all of that, he's going to save eight folks, Noah and his immediate family. And instead, at the very end of divine wrath pouring out in the form of a flood, killing everybody but eight people on the planet, at the end of that, God makes a covenant. And what does he say? He says, I will not flood and demolish the earth as I did like this with water again. And so the bow that was turned down toward all of humanity is now pointed up. That's why rainbow goes like this, because it is the bow of God, it is the promise of God, and now it's pointing back to the heavens. You keep going. And Abraham, Abraham is this pagan worshiper. He does not love God. He is not following after Yahweh, and yet God sovereignly chooses him. He says, you're going to be Father Abraham, many sons, Father Abraham, I'm one of them. So are you, turn around, sit down, the whole bit. You're going to be a father of many nations. He takes him outside, look at the stars. See all the stars, Abraham? Your descendants will be much greater. This is where he gets to establish the nation that would be Israel. And in that, as a sign and symbol, what does he do? He estates for the Israelites this idea of circumcision. Well, before anybody raises your hand and asks what circumcision is, it is a surgery. There is blood involved. It is a separating. There is something different about these people. And as long as you obey me, and as long as you follow after me, you're Abraham and all of your descendants are going to be a blessing to all people. And then you keep going and we get to the book of Exodus and we see this Mosaic covenant that's taking place inside of here that we've just talked about. This is the relationship that he has with Israel. And again, if you will follow me, I am your God. You are my people. If you follow after me and obey after me, then guess what's going to take place? You're going to have just a huge blessing on this earth as my people. But if you don't, death is going to come. Death is going to come. Now, we see inside of this particular covenant that we're at in Exodus chapter 24 that that this covenant is kind of sealed with two different things. First, it's sealed with God's word. God's word. What is God demanding inside of the moral and the civil law? Perfection. Yep, you heard it. What does God demand out of God's people? God demands that his people be perfect. 
This is what he's declaring inside of the moral law and inside of the civil law. He's declaring about himself. Okay, I'm your God. You're my people. If you want to live and you want to have life, then the God of the Bible, let us not lessen that in any way. The God of the Bible is declaring to his people, if you want to be in a relationship with me, then you must be perfect. Why? Because he is holy, because he is righteous, because he is perfect. He cannot be in the presence of anything that is not perfect. God demands in salvation that we be that, that God's people be perfect. How is God depicted often inside the scripture and even in this passage? God isn't some, you know, guy in a white suit or sitting across with you playing chess declaring that he is God. No, God is a consuming fire on top of a mountain, on top of a mountain that he's constantly illustrating himself as this all-consuming spirit and power and presence that we've got to be very careful that we can't come into the full presence of God because if you do, you will surely die. Why? Because he is so good. God, isn't this scary thing for the sake of scariness? I know that the day is Halloween, all of those sorts of things. It's not to be looked at as, as this evil monster, but rather we are not good, and he is so good, and to be in his presence would absolutely annihilate us. This is what God is demanding inside of this covenant. He's come down, and he's saying, these are the words, these are the rules. You must follow all of these commands perfectly. He is perfect. He demands perfection. And after the reading of these rules and demands, notice, what do the people say? Verse 3, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. He goes on to say it again. He rereads them all. Hey, are you sure about this? Moses says, are you sure? Do you understand what God is declaring of you? You must be perfect. You must follow all of these rules. The people know that. And how do they respond? All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. They understood what he was asking for perfection and they agreed to be perfect. The next thing that we see in the side of this covenant is that it's sealed with blood. Sealed with blood. Well, what is blood? Well, again, blood is a picture of both life and death. To live, what do you need? You need blood. If you lose too much blood, what happens? You die. It is both the, the symbol of both life and death. The people here, the people of God, are to be set apart. We see inside this picture that God, and we see this originally, I think it's in Exodus chapter 20 or 21, this establishment of these altars. Typically, an altar is like a physical place that is a representation of God. Notice what the people began to do, and then what Moses does. They begin to sacrifice all of these animals. See, for the wages of sin is death. Something must die. All right? It's a poultry, guys. I promise it's okay. It's Halloween. This is Halloween. This is Halloween. Okay. We see within this passage of Scripture this idea of animals being cut. 
Well, what did we see in, inside of the, the Eden, the covenant inside of Eden? Well, an animal had to die for the covering of sin so that God could look at Adam and Eve again. They had to be what? Covered. We see this inside of the Abrahamic covenant that within the, the very idea of circumcision, but even inside uh, the Abraham covenant, we had this really crazy, awesome story about where God tells Abraham to cut a bunch of animals in half and to dig this ditch and to lay them on the side of the ditch and all the blood kind of runs down into this gully that is just flowing with blood. Oftentimes, this, would have very, uh, this was even a, a textual, cultural thing that a lot of times when people would even would make covenants with each other, maybe a blood brothers or a blood oath of some sorts, that they would walk through them hand in hand. And essentially, they're saying, if we both agree to this, then what's going to come to us? Life. But if one of us breaks this covenant, what is coming to us? May we be split in half. May we be killed for disobeying this. So Abraham does all this work, right? All the blood's flowing down. It comes time for them to walk. And what does the Bible tell us that God does? Hey, Abraham, you go to sleep. And the Bible tells us that fire, a torch, comes down and walks through the ditch of blood. This is sealed in their blood. We see in this worship service, and I'm, I'm glad that things have changed. We'll get to that in just a minute. But in this worship service, there's all this blood that's taking place. Why? Because it is the source of life, and it is also teaching them and showing them, hey, this is a matter of life and death. There must be appeasement for God's wrath. He demands that if you sin against him, that something, someone must die. And God established inside of these covenants that he would take momentarily or temporarily the blood of these animals for the sins of these people. Notice what Moses does first. He first goes to the altar, which what the altar represents? The altar represents God and his presence, right? And he first takes the blood of these animals and he throws it upon them. Why? Because God is declaring as well, until death, I will keep my promise. And then what does Moses do? Then he sprinkles it out upon the people. And what are they to do? We will do all that you demand. We will obey every word. We will be perfect or die. Or death become us. We also see, again, this picture of atonement, that this, this picture of propitiation or expiation, those are big fancy theological words. You can look those up later or talk to us. Pastor Todd, all right? But in this, we see this as well, that it's not just this grotesque thing, but it's also of this picture of we're standing before God and we are covered in the blood of these animals and God is, is pleased with that because for the wage of sin is death. Something must die. These things died. And so there is forgiveness there. There are benefits there. There's the symbol of grace there. Why? Because they had sin, but their sin had been paid for. This is what I demand. This is what you must do. God, we will do it. Exodus chapter 24. 
in a few weeks, where are we going to see the Israelites? Naked running circles around a golden calf. And to really preach that passage, I'm going to go ahead and allude to it. Uh, to really preach that passage, we probably shouldn't have any kids and it would make us all feel really uncomfortable. But that's just a little teaser for what's to come. It's not going to take very long. And again, if you're very familiar with the Old Testament, are they going to do what they commit to do? Absolutely not. The Israelites fail at this miserably. They go through, again, this cycle. Many of them are going to lose their physical lives. What did God say? All right, this is what I demand of you. Either be perfect, live, and be blessed, or die. And throughout the Old Testament, we see this time and time again, and many of them absolutely lose their lives. Other times, as I mentioned earlier, they're going to get to the promised land, but then they start being disobedient again. And what does God do? He removes them from the very promised land or he allows them to be enslaved. They are a people that have committed with their mouths, but they have not committed with their hearts. And it is absolutely impossible, as we will see, for them to actually be perfect. And yet, And yet, later on, we meet this ruddy guy. He's believed to have a small little guy, small little frame. He's kind of weird because he knows how to fight, but he plays a harp. I mean, that's, he's a strange young man. The Bible says he's ruddy. He's one of Jesse's sons. There's a prophet that comes to Jesse and says, hey, one of your boys is going to be king. Just even you think about or consider the little ruddy guy, David. And he looks at all the other sons. He said, nope, 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 nope. Hey, Jesse, you got any other sons? Yeah, David, but, you know, he likes to play the harp. <laughs> He's got red hair. He's real pale. He's not a looker. Well, go get him. Hey, David, you're going to be king. You can imagine the other brothers. David, you're going to be king. Now, David is a man after God's own heart. He's got lots of ups and downs with the Lord, does he not? Crazy David. But he's God's chosen man. And after uh, lots of ups and downs, David was a great king in many ways, but he was a terrible dad. And through all sorts of things that begin to happen between David and, his, and his, his earthly kingdom, God comes to David and he says something. He says, hey, David, I know that things are, this is obviously paraphrased, hey, David, I know that things are rather crazy. It's hard to find hope in the midst of chaos right now. But one day, you're going to have a son. And that son, I'm going to give a throne. And that son, I'm going to give a city. And that son, I'm going to give a kingdom. Put your faith, put your hope in that. Well, lo and behold, David has lots of kids. He has this one named Solomon, and Solomon essentially gets a throne, gets a city, and gets a kingdom. The only problem with that is like, Solomon, the words of my dad, is a full-grown jackleg. I don't even know what that means, but it ain't good. Like, you don't want to be, it's like calling somebody a jabroni for you wrestling fans. You don't want to be that. 
That is not something you want to be. He's very wise, but struggles to obey God and to keep his demands as his people are supposed to be. But there is hope. We see later on inside of the, the prophets as they begin to come and they begin to talk to the people. They're trying to tell, to tell them, hey, you've got to come back to God. And we see inside of this several passages. So if you'll click to Jeremiah for me. Inside of Jeremiah, he's this prophet. Notice what he says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. See, this is the old covenant. And a prophet, an Israelite, is coming to God's people. And he's saying, hey, God is going to do something new. A new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with the fathers of the, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law, notice what God is doing, I will put my law in them. Notice. And I will write it in their hearts, and there will be my God, and I shall be their people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each to his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall know all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive them of their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. All right, let's go to the next one in Ezekiel, right? In Ezekiel chapter 36, there's another prophet. They, they're again, they're obeying, disobeying, obeying, disobeying, life, death, life, death, life, death, life, death, life, death. Another prophet comes. He's speaking on behalf of God. The book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanliness. Well, how can they accomplish that? They can't. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. How is that possible? And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. What's he do? I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave you to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all of your uncleanness. Notice verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Notice what God does inside of this passage is over and over and over again, we're seeing that what God demands is he's demanding perfection, and yet these people cannot get it. They cannot be perfect no matter what they say with their lips, no matter what they try to do with their hands, they cannot be perfect. And yet, even in the Old Testament, from the book of Genesis and even throughout the Old Testament, we're seeing a future Messiah, a future coming, a new covenant and the thing is, is that it doesn't destroy the old covenant, but rather supersedes it, fulfills it even greater. And we see that in who? In the person of Jesus. When Jesus comes, he declares in John, the first chapter, and I think I had this on a slide as well. He says this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. What is the covenant sealed with? It's first sealed with the word of God. Jesus declares about himself, in the beginning was the word and the word was God, was with God, and the word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the word became flesh and dwelled among us and we have seen his glory. 
inside this new covenant, the one that will supersede this Old Testament covenant that we're talking about inside of Exodus chapter 24 is all revolving around a certain word, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the word of God. He is the authority of God. He speaks for God, but it's literally the word of God is incarnated into the person and work of Jesus. And though you and I cannot be close to God the Father, we can be close to Jesus why? Because in this new covenant, it is also sealed with blood. Go to the Romans passages here. Romans chapter 3, verse 25, whom God put forward by, as a propitiation, that means essentially covered, it appeases God's wrath by what? His blood. To be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance that he had passed over former sins. Romans 5, 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 2, 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Colossians 1, 19 through 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And then if you have not read the book of Hebrews, the brother had Exodus all opened up as he was writing the book of Hebrews, and we're going to actually cover that in a few weeks here. So we see inside of this new covenant that it is also sealed. It is sealed by what? The word of God, and who is the word? His name is Jesus it is also sealed by blood, not the blood of animals, but the blood of God himself, the blood of Jesus, the Son of God. What the animal blood could not appease, it was only temporary, it only lasts a certain amount of time. What we see inside the perfect blood of Christ is perfect in such a way that it is constantly covering us. You and I are in Christ or we are outside of Christ. You either stun, stand as under the ever-flowing, constant, infinite flow of Christ's perfect blood covering over your sin, or you are removed from that. And one is the giving of life, and one is the punishment of death. Brothers and sisters, please understand this. God's demands of you, even as Christians, has not changed. God still demands that you be perfect. You must be perfect. There's not an individual who has stepped forth into heaven's gates who is not perfect. You must be. God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. The decree from God the Father is that you must be perfect. And yet, what do we all know? It is impossible for us to do it. And so what must happen? Jesus must come. He must be the word. Everything that God decrees, everything that God demands, he must follow it to perfection. And he does so even to the point of death. And because of that very blood, you stand before God in a perfect positional state from his viewpoint, as though we're not perfect on this position, but in God's viewpoint of you, he sees the finished 
work of Christ. You've been covered in the blood of Christ. You've been covered. You stand before him in a perfected form. Why? Because of Jesus. Because of Christ. Therefore, you and I, unlike all other religions, we cannot work our way to heaven because it's impossible for us to keep the demands of God. We must have someone to atone for us. We must have someone to be our substitute for us, the perfect substitute, and his name is Christ Jesus, our Lord. We get to rejoice in this place today. We can worship Jesus in this place today because of of Christ and his blood. We can now stand in the presence of an almighty, holy God, what the Israelites could not do. You and I can do because of the blood of Jesus. We have been washed. There is a fountain that covers us. And so now, because of Jesus, we meet the demands of God, the demands to be perfect, to be in his presence. Why? Because of Christ. We are not under the the old covenant, but rather you and I are under what we call the new covenant, what the Bible calls the new covenant. And it was on, uh, you know, this, 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 that Christ stood, that he proclaimed that Jesus really is that good, that we cling to Jesus, that we love Jesus, that we honor Jesus. And so what happens then really quickly about our obedience? Where does our obedience fit into this? Well, again, all other religions and even people will try to counterfeit Christianity and to make it about your good works. You in some way have got to be good enough to find God's favor. Guess what? You will never get it. You will never get it on your own. You can never be holy enough on your own. You can never be righteous enough on your own. You can never be perfect on your own. And yet, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, as the, these passages spoke to, what do they say? That his Holy Spirit would be placed inside of you, and that he, even the New Testament would tell us in the book of Ephesians, that God has ordained and chosen and established within us because of Christ that you and I can actually now do good works. But they're not to save us. They're because we are saved. See, sometimes you're going to find people, especially in America, who claim to be followers of Jesus, And they're going to say, well, since I'm in Christ, then I can pretty much do whatever I I, I want to do because, because, you know, he's going to forgive me. And yet, isn't this not what Paul would say in the book of Romans? Shall we continue on sinning so that grace might abound? No. Rather, when you and I understand who God is, when you and I understand who Jesus is and how we are covered in his blood forevermore, then the only response is to say, by grace and for grace, I will seek to be faithful. I will seek to be faithful, knowing all the while that when I fail, I remain covered in his blood. Let's pray.